We live in perilous times, church family. If you look around, you look around internationally, we still are dealing with and seeing what hadn't been seen uh, in certainly the Western world since World War II with Russia invading Ukraine. If you saw the news, uh, Sri Lanka's royal palace was overrun by thousands of citizens in protest of their president and prime minister. If you hang in and look nationally, uh, goodness, does it not feel like our own country just is on the brink? Uh, there's... Uh, allusions to authoritarianism. We see institutional attack, public distrust. We watch, has there ever been a time when you've seen in the public discourse such strong sentiments opposing biblical Christianity? Free speech, not a popular idea anymore. We could move into the the ecclesiastical level. We could take and examine churches within our country, and we find in churches we see Celebration oftentimes of entertainment over truth. We see movement towards cultural philosophies and whims and ideologies rather than the word. We, goodness, we find problems. We can move it to the personal level, the life that we live day in and day out. And we, because all of the wickedness in those large things certainly comes in and sinfulness into the personal things. We see people rewarded who are gossips and slanderers. We find our character attacked. We we deal with shame. We find ourselves lonely if we walk with Christ. Pain, sorrow are, are not abnormal. We find ourselves in perilous times. And, and here's the question that I would propose, and the question that ultimately in part is what our, our walk through Habakkuk has been getting us to, which is how do you and I walk with God faithfully in the midst of times of distress? In times of distress, how do we walk with God faithfully instead of falling into the paralysis of fear at everything we see around us and beyond us, without falling into the trap of anger and and lashing out in ways that are inappropriate? How do we walk with God faithfully in the day of distress? So if you'll turn with me back to Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to watch Habakkuk put together what we've seen in the previous two chapters the last two weeks. Now, I'll remind us, the book of Habakkuk is is the prophet Habakkuk uh, coming to the Lord, and he's got a question at first. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm troubled because I see the wickedness amongst my people. I see your people, God, walking and living in ways that are sinful, unfaithful to the covenant relationship that you've given that you've called us to. And I'm asking for, for justice. I'm asking for, for discipline. Something needs to happen here. He's praying in accordance with the will of God, but God seems silent and removed. And then God answers him and says, uh, says Habakkuk, I'm far from being removed and inactive, I've been actively at work and I am raising up Babylon to come in and be the harbinger of discipline to correct Judah, to correct your people. And that leads Habakkuk to another question. Oh, Lord, the first question is, where are you? The second question is, how can you? How can you use you who are holy, who are perfect, who doesn't approve evil? How can you take this nation that's even more wicked than we are and use them as an instrument? And and God certainly answers his question and said, you need to understand, Habakkuk, I am just, and, and Babylon will receive their due reward. They will fall. But he presents He presents Habakkuk with the answer to the bigger question, which is, Lord, how do I walk and wrestle with you? He says, Habakkuk, my righteous one will live by faith. Will live by faith that drives faithful living. And church family, the key thing as we come to chapter 3 that I want all of us to remember is this situation 
that Habakkuk is facing is a reality because Judah, the, the southern kingdom, the people of God are willfully, intentionally walking in sinful rebellion. The situation hasn't come about because they're walking righteously and someone's opposing. They are in this situation because sin and idolatry has infiltrated every level of the people of God. And God is on the move to deal with that issue. So look with me here in chapter 3. It says this, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigiathnath. Now you go, what is Shigiathnath? Good question. No one really knows because it's a musical term that would describe how to put what, what follows to some kind of music to be sung, and that's all we know about it. But what we do know is here's the prayer, and look at verse 2. Here's very directly the prayer. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work. Bring your work back to life in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known, make it understood in wrath Remember mercy, or that is compassion, a meet us with pity. It's a maternal term that speaks of the tenderness and compassion and care that a mother has for her child. He says, Lord, I've heard the report. Now, what's the report? The report would be God's answers in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the report that I'm raising up Babylon, the report that discipline is coming, the report that Babylon is, will be punished. God, I've heard the report about you. I've heard the report about your works. And my response is that I fear. That word which means to be in reverence and awe. My response, God, is I see who you are. I see what you're up to. And I am in awe of your greatness and your majesty. There is a respect and a submission to the glory of who you are. But it's also a term that can mean simply to truly be afraid and terror. And likely what Habakkuk is feeling is a little bit of both. To the Lord, awe, respect, reverence for his power, majesty, and holiness. To the reality of what is coming, intimidation, terror, fear. And it drives him, the fear of the Lord drives him to pray. He says, Lord, revive your work. Bring it back to life. Well, well what work? Well, it would be the, the work of God to bring salvation, to defend his people, to revive the land. Revive your work. Bring it back to life, Lord. Bring a movement. Remember, Habakkuk would have seen King Josiah and the work of God in King Josiah's life where revival seemed to go from Josiah into the land and proper worship was restored, but then quickly abandoned after Josiah's Death, Lord, in the midst of years, in the midst, bring, revive your work in the midst of wrath, in the midst of, of your just anger towards our sin, remember mercy. And then he moves into what is a two-part psalm. And look what it says with me, verse 3. God, from, God comes from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heaven, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance, His glory is like the sunlight, and He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed or measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. 
His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress, and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. And here in the first part of the psalm, as Habakkuk lays out this psalm, he is driving home a core truth and reality through, through all these terms. He is describing God. The word for God there is, is, a very, is one of the oldest words for God seen in the Hebrew language, which hints at a truth that when, we're, when he speaks of God here, he's not just speaking of the God of Israel. He is speaking of the God who is Lord over all creation, the Ancient of Days the Holy One, one who is completely unique and other in His being, and in His character and in His judgments, completely righteous, pure, without defect. The One whose glory, whose splendor is so brilliant and radiant, it's conceived of as light, and it seems as if His coming, His coming up out of the land south of Israel is like a mighty and majestic and powerful thunderstorm. Not only that, but before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him, both of which he says in in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and, and 29, he tells Israel, if you walk in unfaithfulness to the covenant, eventually what will come is I will bring discipline and I will bring pestilence and plague. Those are terms for his just judgments on sin. It says that in the glory of, uh, of who he comes, he stood, which implies what we saw last week. If he's going to stand, it means that he is firmly seated on his throne. And he's not standing because someone has shaken him off. He's standing by his own volition to survey or measure the land. If you're going to survey or measure the land, you know what that means, church family? It's already yours. To startle the nations, this speaks of his power, his firmness, It says that the perpetual or ancient or everlasting mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. You think about mountains. These are pictures of power and majesty. And I don't know, I know the inevitable question is, who's a mountain person? Who's a beach person? Regardless of where you fall, mountains are majestic. They make you feel small. But not only that, but in ancient cultures, mountains were also associated as the home of pagan deities. The Greek gods, Mount Olympus, Baal, Mount Carmel, to say that the ancient mountains, the mountains of old, the hills of old, that they were shattered, that they were collapsed, that they were obliterated, is to say that any power structure falls in complete and total disarray before the glory and presence of a holy God. And here's the truth this psalm prevents, church family, is presents as, as you and I see it. We need to understand the Lord God is the one who is glorious. His splendor is majestic. His glory fills the earth. He is holy in His nature. He is righteous in His judgment. This presents a picture of the majesty and greatness and grandeur of who God is. And I love the imagery. Uh, back in college, there was a summer I spent in college as an RA, and that summer we happened to just have thunderstorm after thunderstorm, some of the worst the Dallas-Fort Worth area had seen. And, but where DBU was, we'd go sit out on the hill, and you could see it light up. And I love to sit out there. There's something humbling about watching the power and majesty of the storm. A time on a mission trip, we were sitting up on the side of a mountain, and you began to hear, I'd never heard noise that loud, like cannon shots. And as we looked over the valley, you watched a thunderstorm roll in. And in that moment, 
you just realize, wow, I am small. But forever small, you and I could feel at the power of a great storm. Oh, how much more are we small compared to the greatness, glory, and grandeur of the one who is God over the storm? Not only that, but we need to understand, church family, it is this great, glorious, holy God. What Habakkuk understands and what he says here is pestilence and plague comes before him. This great, holy, glorious, mighty God, he is the one coming to bring discipline to his people. To bring discipline to his people. Judah has walked out of line. God is going to correct them. He's going to bring correction and church family understand. That doesn't change for you and I as Christians on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. We now are the people of God by grace through faith, through a personal response to Christ. And in our lives, when you respond to Christ, God declares you and God declares me. He declares us holy. We're not holy of our own effort. We're not holy of our own accord. He makes us holy. But then once we're his and once he's declared us holy, he then also commands us, be holy as I am holy, 1 Peter chapter 1. And you and I are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the holiness that he has given us and declared us. We call this the process of sanctification. God in 1 Peter chapter 4 makes it clear that his justice, his, his discipline, his correction, it starts with his own people. And church, you and I need to understand that as we see this picture of a God who is great, who is glorious, who is mighty, we need to understand we must take sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. We must take sin inside the church. There should be no partiality. Church should be generous, marked by generosity. We should praise character and integrity over charisma and creativity. We should honor the one who preaches and teaches the truth rather than the one who tickles our ears. We should stand firm and gracious and humble on the word rather than capitulating to cultural whims, entertainment, and ideologies. But understand, if we need to take sin seriously as a church, it starts with us taking sin seriously as the individuals who make up the church. It starts taking serious. If change is going to start, it must start with me. We need to move out of living situations with people we shouldn't be in, whether it's romantic or not. We need to stop the use of fl false flattery or white lies, gossip and falsehood to, to move and go. We need to think about and move away from being rude and argumentative as a habit of our life, to flee sexual morality of all kinds, and that's anything outside of sexual activity between one man, one woman created that way in the act of marriage. It excludes homosexual and heterosexual and any other kind of sexual behavior. Not being faithful with finances, give to the Lord, others, Caesar, employees, whatever. Listen, church family, it's got to start with us, and it is far easier to rage at the sins of society and the sins of group that, as an excuse to play patty cake with our own sins. It's far easier to call out and scoff at the sins of society than to own up, be honest, and turn from the sins of our own soul. But God is the glorious, holy, mighty one. God takes sin seriously. Habakkuk sees a picture of God coming, this mighty, powerful, holy God. And why is he coming there to Judah? He is coming to deal with their sin. And if we take God seriously, so we must take him seriously there. But that's not where it stops. If in the first part we see a great and glorious God coming to deal justly with the sin of his people, look at verse 8. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea? 
that you rode on, the horses, on your horses on your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep, that is that the, the deep treacherous part of the ocean uttered forth its voice. It cried out, it lifted its hands high. The waves raged. The sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil. You laid him open from foundation to neck. You pierced him with his own spears, the heads of his, his own warriors. They stormed to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour and oppress in secret, you, God, trampled the sea with your horses and on the surge of many waters. He moves into the second part of the psalm. If the first part presents a glorious, holy, splendorous God who is coming to deal with the sin of his people, then the second part of the psalm presents a God who is almighty, all-powerful, who is a warrior king against whom no, no force of nature and no army of man and no combination thereof can stand before his victory. His victory that it says is for the salvation of his people. He mentions the waters, picture of the enemies of God. He, he pictures God as one whose bow and, and rods, whose spears, the mountains quake, the waters. I mean, get that. Do you realize? Think about the power of that. God's victory is so sure. It doesn't matter how much the weather storms. It doesn't matter how much the, the seas rage. It doesn't matter how sure and steady are the sun and moon in their place. They will stand still and go dark at the presence of his power in March. The greatest of warriors, allusions back to the people in the Exodus, both Egyptians and other peoples who sought to attack. God, it says that, God, you went forth, you acted, you were the warrior king, you brought deliverance, you went forth for the salvation of your people. And church family, in this second part of the psalm, we see a, a clear truth presented. If the first part, God is holy and glorious, the second part, God is absolutely victorious. If in the first part, God deals with the sin of his people, in the second part, God deals with the rebellion of all his enemies, and they all fall. It's not dramatic. It's not picturesque for Hollywood. It describes in that psalm the absolute and complete and total destruction of everyone who stands against the purposes and person of God. But then it also says this, that God's victory, that his movement is for the salvation of his people. Church family, maybe you hear and you hear, wow, pastor, that's really tough. That was a, that's a hard word on God's discipline for our sin. Yes, but it's a loving word. Both Proverbs and Hebrews tell us that God's discipline in our lives as his children is not driven by animosity, but by his great love. By his great love, his desire to bring salvation, his desire to, to see every man, woman, boy, and girl brought back into a right relationship with him and those that are in right relationship with him to experience the overwhelming fullness and goodness of him, which is incomparable to any supposed goodness that sin will trick you into thinking this world can offer. 
It's loving because God acts for the salvation of his people. We need to understand this. All of God's actions inside of history, here it's poetic language, but it's describing God's tangible, tangible action inside of history. Church family, all of God's actions in history are always for the glory of his name through the salvation of his people. God is at work right now in this world seeking to proclaim the gospel, seeking to make his salvation known to all peoples. God is at work through his church in doing that. And this is why it's also loving. If it's loving to correct his own children who've gotten distracted with lesser, and, and not just lesser things, but things that bring death and destruction, it's also loving towards the world. Because church family, who is the light of the world? Certainly it's Jesus, but who does Jesus charge with being his light? His church you and me. And if God were to look at us as we choose to walk and get distracted by sin and do absolutely nothing, not only would it be unloving in our lives, but it would be unloving for the world's lives because the majority of time, the closest thing that anyone in this world is going to see to Jesus Christ before the day of judgment is you and me. God is the warrior king. He's completely, totally victorious. All sin, all opposition will fall, and he acts for the salvation of his people, which is driven by love and goodness. This vision, this picture that drives this psalm, Habakkuk says this about it in verse 16, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay or rottenness entered my bones. And in my place, I, I tremble. My legs are unsteady. He hears this. He sees this message. He sees the glory of God. He fears and awes God, but he also sees that God is bringing discipline. He understands the reality of what that's going to mean. He sees all of this, and, and his response is, is really complete and total physical physiological exhaustion. Listen to how Jeremiah, alive at the same time, prophesying against Israel. Listen how his response is in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 19, seeing the same things. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed for the whole land is devastated. Surely my tents are devastated, my curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. God says they know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but they to do good they do not know. You see, to be the one walking righteously with God and to see his glory and holiness, to recognize his hand of discipline coming to correct his people, to see the devastation coming, it leaves Habakkuk emptied of himself. His lips quiver. His body trembles, rottenness to his bones. And understand why. Habakkuk, remember, Habakkuk's writing this sometime in between 609 B.C. and 605 B.C. Babylon is ascending to power. They're not to power yet. In 605, though, Babylon will now be the world's power. They will have a decisive victory over Egypt at Carchemish, and they will come against Jerusalem for the first time in that moment. 
And in that initial, in that initial uh, occupation, they will occupy, they will oppress, they will establish their rules and leaders, and they will pull out a first group of exiles. They will come back after some dust up and some tension from Jerusalem in 597, and they will reoccupy the city, redouble down on oppression, and pull another group of exiles out. But then is, Jerusalem will, will try to get sneaky and try to pull one over on Babylon, and Babylon won't have any of it. So in 586, Babylon will come again not to oppress but to besiege and destroy. They will surround the city of Jerusalem and cut off all water and food supply. The picture inside of the city would be horrific. There would be people starving. There would be people dying of dehydration. There would be all sorts of human waste in the streets. It says in Scripture some of the people even resort to cannibalism at that point. Once the people are starved out and they build up a ramp to siege the city, the Babylonian army will come in. They will slaughter. They will slaughter men, women, children. They will march to the temple, the glorious temple. That's a reflection of God's presence and a sign of His, His being with His people. They will go to that temple and they will level it to the ground. They will pillage and take the holy artifacts from that. And understand what that means. You're, an, you're, you're, you're a, a Jew and you know the story that any, no one can go in the holy of holies and, and not die. You, you understand no one can touch the ark. One tried to catch it from falling and he was struck dead. The Babylonians will march straight into that holy and holies. They'll burn that veil down. They'll pillage that ark of the covenant. They will absolutely decimate because the Lord has pulled his protection off of his people. The Lord is allowing discipline to come. Understand when Habakkuk describes this utter and complete trembling, understand what he knows is coming. What Jeremiah knows is coming. But the righteous will walk by faith. Habakkuk has asked questions in chapters 1 and 2. He has received the answer. Look at how it changes him. These filled me because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people who will who, to arise, who will invade us. So your Bible might say uh, to go against the people who invade us. Both are, both are actually accurate in the Hebrew and likely both are meant. He says, I, I must wait patiently. I must rest. I must, I must prepare and endure and I must live faithfully now knowing that this day is coming, that these people will rise against us. Also knowing that from God's word, he will bring justice to those people in time. And then look what he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, Though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, though the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there will be no cattle in the stalls. He describes the complete and total collapse of the economy and society, moving from least to greatest. The loss of all these things would be absolutely devastating. The normal way of life completely thrown out the window, though all will fail, yet... I will exult, I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God himself is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me to walk in the high places. Here is how faith has transformed him. Though on a human level he is absolutely terrified of what is coming, 
Because as the righteous one, he must walk by faith, driving into faithfulness, walk faithfully with God, and that faithfulness produced from a calm assurance, a complete and total trust in who he is. It enables him to go, I know it's coming, and I will wait, I will rest in the day of distress. I will be marked by a calm and a patience that doesn't take matters into my own hands. Though everything will fail, I will exalt, I will rejoice in the salvation of my God. Though I sit in the city and see it besieged, though I watched my God's temple plundered, though I saw death in the streets, though it seems like there is no sign of salvation, I know my God, I know his word is true, I will rejoice in his salvation. And then he provides a truth that God is his strength. How can he possibly do that? Because as he walks by faith, God is the one giving him strength. And it describes an interesting imagery. It says that God is my strength. He makes my feet like hind's feet, like a deer's feet or an ibex or mountain goat, some kind of animal like that, to walk the high places. And if it doesn't instantly pop into your mind, it's okay. It didn't in mine either. And and as I kept going back, but if you go to the Holy Land or other places, if you go to the Holy Land in Getty, beautiful, it's where David hid out from Saul, and there's steep cliffs, and all of a sudden you'll hear this animal noise and go, where's that coming from? And you'll find an ibex with these huge horns on some random part of that cliff. You have no clue how that animal could have gotten on. Or maybe you've watched some kind of a nature show like Planet Earth and there's, you've seen the mountain goats that are, that are literally just casually hopping and walking along the edges of cliffs that you and I could not climb. He says, God strengthens me. What He enables me to do is in the high places, places of peril, distress, terror, He makes my feet like hind's feet so I can walk. And walk is always an interesting term in Scripture, not run, not climb. Walking is the most basic, fundamental movement of life. You run in a game, but you don't run all the time. You climb when you go to the mountain, but you don't climb all the time, but you walk all the time. When he says he makes my feet to walk, God's strength enables me in the midst of perilous, dangerous, hard places to live and move and breathe faithfully in daily life. And church family, you and I can know the same strength, the same might, the same power when you and I walk by faith-driven faithfulness. And what chapter 3 does for you and I, we've mentioned that for the last three weeks, what chapter 3 does for you and me is all of a sudden we see how that faith-driven faithfulness, how it manifests, how it plays out, what actions it brings in the life of Habakkuk. It brings, it brings these things. Faith-driven faithfulness is going to bring remembering and praising who God is for what He's done. You see that all throughout the psalm. We see through the psalm that God is the glorious one who comes in splendor, majesty, and power. He's the holy and loving one who graciously disciplines his people for our good. He's the Lord over all creation who, who rules in his might. He's the warrior king who conquers all who set themselves to oppose him. 
Oh, he's the bringer of salvation and the deliverer of his people, church family. He's the all-knowing who sees his people and hears their cries even in the midst of wickedness and distress. He is the almighty who strengthens his people to tread the high places in days of distress. Who is he, church family? He is the Lord God, and if you are in Christ, he is not just the Lord God, he is the Lord our God. We are going to have to, if we are going to walk by faith and faithfulness, it means you and I are going to have at some point to shut down the news if it's stuff nationally bogging us, to, to take a moment of reprieve if there's some kind of oppression in our life personally. We are going to have to find ways to stop and remember who He is and what He's done. And it matters what he's done because what he's done guarantees what he's doing and what he's going to do and where we're going if we're in Christ. But you and I are going to have to pause and take effort and and meditate and think. We're going to have to focus on the greatness and the glory of who our God is. If we're going to walk by faith, we're going to have to remember and praise who he is and what he's done. If we're going to walk by faith, we're going to have to be people who pray the will of God. Did you catch that back at the beginning? Oh, Lord, I've heard the report about you. I fear. And then we see him pour out a prayer. Revive your work. We find in chapter 1, he's praying for God to bring discipline. We find in chapter 2, Lord, bring justice, church, family. We will have to be a people who are a prayerful people because we fear the Lord. And we have to be a people as a prayerful people according to Scripture who don't just pray our own wish list and toss this. Listen, you can absolutely pray about anything in your life. Understanding that what the Lord delights to answer is and what the Lord delights for us to pray are are those things that are in His will. And you say, well, goodness, I don't know all of His will. Yeah, but we know about a good solid 80% of it because He wrote it down. We need to be people who pray for God's discipline, who pray for God's movement and correction and and the people of God. We need to be people who, who pray for God's justice on the wickedness and reality of the world. We need to be people who are praying actively for God's saving work, for revival to take place yet again. Listen, church family, there has never been a movement of the reviving, saving power of God that has ever started apart from his people bowing the knee in prayer. Both of our great awakenings started with a small group of people bowing their knee in prayer. By the way, younger people in the room, the second great awakening particularly was started by a group of young people bowing their knee in prayer. Church family, if we want to see revival again, if we want to see, and understand too, I mentioned this last week, revival starts with the people of God. You can't revive what's dead you got to be alive for revival to happen. What we need in, in our world, what we need specifically in our nation, we need our churches to be revived. We need as the people of God to experience revival, and as we experience revival, it will translate over into a witness in the world where what we pray in the world is for awakening and salvation. But it will not happen, church family, if we are not a people of prayer. It's why, just, just to give you a... a A note, you will hear me and you will see me as we move towards this fall. The number one thing that is most important on my heart for us as a church as we come to the new school year, more than anything, is that we take active steps to be a church that is a church of prayer. 
You're going to hear me mention things like 24-7 prayer, Monday night prayer meetings, Sunday morning prayer meetings. We must be a church of prayer. And remember, if we're going to be a church of prayer, church family, it means each one of us as individual believers are going to have to learn to be a praying people, a praying person. If we walk by faith, we pray, and we pray in the will of God. We cry out for God to move. We pray with passion. Do you hear the urgency of Habakkuk's cry, Lord, revive your work. We pray with persistence. We don't give up. We, like Habakkuk, say, Lord, I am going to the watchtower. I will not be moved by the winds of this world. I will not be satisfied by my own speculations. I am here in the watchtower on my knees praying and seeking you. We must be a praying people if we walk by faith. If we walk by faith, we must rest with patience in the heart of God. Listen, there is a connection in Scripture between patience and faith. We find throughout here patience for God's movement. Why is, why is he patient? How can he wait quietly for the day of distress? Well, God, Habakkuk knows God is at work. Habakkuk knows that he's commanded to wait. God tells him, wait, though it may tarry, be patient. Habakkuk knows God's character. There is, and so rather than going out and trying to accomplish something on his own, instead he will abide inside the work and movement of God and wait patiently with a rest. In fact, the opposite is true in Scripture. There is, when we walk in impatience, it represents a lack of faith. We see it in Abraham's life, Moses' life. Pick almost any major character of Scripture, and you will see an incident in their life where they did not wait on God and took their own path, and it always ends in disaster of one kind or another. But church family, our ability to wait patiently is going to be tied to how committed we are to who God is and what He's called us to do. It's going to force us to reckon with our own mortality in light of eternity. When Habakkuk says he's going to wait, remember, he goes, I'm going to wait patiently for disaster to come. There is no possible way for you and I to wait in peace, seeing potential disaster ahead of us, unless you and I are really secure in our faith and who God is and what, he's done, and what He does, what He's up to, what He's doing. When Habakkuk says, I wait patiently for God to deal with Babylon, understand this, Habakkuk likely saw Babylon come and conquer Jerusalem. We don't know what happens to him, but he would not be alive to see Babylon fall to Persia. There's going to be things you and I cry out for, ways we cry out and ask God to move, ask God to bring revival, ask God to dispense justice, ask God things that we may be integral in playing a part of praying for and being a part of discipling but we may get called home before we see the finished work this side of heaven. Which is very normal, actually, if you go read Hebrews chapter 11. And all these by faith died, not having gained what they were promised, but seeing it coming because they desired something greater, not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. We must be people who wait. If we're going to be people who walk by faith, church family, it means we must be people who exult who triumph, who rejoice 
in the salvation of our God. Those words in the passage, yet I will result, I will rejoice in the Hebrew, both are connected to cohortatives, which what that does grammatically means there is no possible stronger way to describe an individual's determination to rejoice, to exult, to triumph. And while rejoicing is more than emotion, both of those words do carry an emotional aspect. They speak to taking triumph and victory, boasting in the salvation of our God. And by the way, the salvation of our God, what does that mean for you and I? Because it's, it's far better than what it meant for Habakkuk's day. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 12 says, our salvation, we've been born again, that we have a living hope that will always be alive, that we have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, it will never fade, moth will never corrode it. It says we're protected by the power of God for His return. Where our faith is tested, but it's tested to result in praise, glory, and honor at the return of Christ. By the way, our salvation means Christ is coming back. And what you and I have in salvation right now, if we are in Christ by faith, the angels who are there in the presence of the throne room of God wish they could get a little peek through the door for a second is the language of verse 13. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us that our salvation has given us everything for life and godliness, everything you and I need to live and move and breathe in any circumstance this world brings. Everything we need to walk intimately and rightly with God, He's given us already in salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 says He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of how much oppression and sin you find around, you and I have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're chosen in Christ. We're adopted as children in Christ. We're redeemed, bought off the block of death by the blood of Christ. We're forgiven in the grace of Christ. We're saved by the kindness of God, and we are sealed forever by the Holy Spirit who dwells with, indwells within and gives us power. Church family, this is our salvation. And the call today, if we're going to walk by faith, it means you and I are going to have to exult, to triumph in that salvation. It means our salvation has to be more than just, man, I'm glad I've got the insurance of eternity. Our, our salvation must drive us. It must thrill us. It must enliven us. And I fear for many of us, myself included, it is far too easy to know and rattle off all these things about salvation but secretly discover in peace and prosperity that I've become far too allured and entrapped to things of this world to where I'm grateful I have the salvation, but does it consume and change and drive every fiber of who I am? Oh, we should rejoice, church family. His salvation does not spare us hardship this side of heaven any more than Jesus Himself was spared hardship. Oh, but this salvation I am His and He is mine. He sees me and knows my name. His grace abounds. I can experience and know His love. There is strength, there is might, there is comfort, there is joy. It is Him who is at work within me. It's not all sitting on my back. Instead, I follow Him. And as we walk in faith, as we exult and triumph, as we take time to think and praise and, and really reflect on the glory. It means if tomorrow the whole world falls apart in nuclear warfare, every one of us in Christ can triumph in His salvation and we will see Him face to face because His salvation is good and true. This is what it means to walk by faith-driven faithfulness in the midst of the day of distress. 
And church family, for me, what drew me to Habakkuk in these last several months was not what's going on in the world, not what's going on in our country. Those things are obvious. For me, it was a situation that for several years I endured personally, where I sought to walk righteously and faithfully, where, where I prayed for God to, to move, where I watched things being done by those around me in ways that were inappropriate, and, and coming to these same wrestling and questions as Habakkuk. And there are times, church family, I've, I've lived the truth out well, times where it's been poorly. The church family, we're going to all face situations, whether it's personal as a student. You come back from camp, you're going to follow the Lord. You discover that as you follow the Lord, it brings you hardship, isolation, and, and shame in the eyes of the world. Maybe you're, uh, you're uh, flip it to the office. You walk with the Lord on and it comes there. Listen, we're going to all face things. It's going to bring questions. We've got to know that our God sees and hears that our God is on His throne, that He is just. He will deal with all sin and wickedness. He will discipline the sin of His people. He will judge the sin of those who oppose. He is victorious. He is holy. He is coming. It's going to mean walking in a faith that is unafraid to persistently approach Him in prayer, a faith that is willing to take captive the thoughts that run through our mind and still them before the Lord, a faith that will pray those things in line with the Lord's character as He revealed in His Word, a faith that will actively stop and remember who He is in the midst of a world of busyness, a faith that will praise and triumph and rejoice in His salvation, a faith that will rest in His character while patiently and confidently awaiting His answer and His actions from the watchtower. It means a faith, church family, that prays persistently and urgently for God's movement once again in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world. It means a faith that is rooted in who He is because He is God and He is at work. May we be on our knees with Him. Let's pray. Father, we live in hard times. And, and, and the wonderful thing about Habakkuk, Lord, is you never, you, you do not rebuke him for the questions he asks. They are genuine questions from a, a man seeking to live righteously in a world around him that is living sinfully. But Lord, you also give him an answer. You don't necessarily answer how it all plays out and, and what's all going to happen, but you give him an answer about how to walk faithfully with you, and it is that the righteous live by faith. So Father, in this room today, for those of us who know you, Lord, may we, may we bring the questions to you, but may we hear your answer today. May we remember who you are. May we pray uh, your will and what you reveal. May we rest patiently. May we exult and triumph in, in your salvation. Oh, church family. God, may you find us to be those people. And Lord, if there's any in this room watching online today, Lord, they don't, they can't walk by faith because there is no faith in you. Oh, Lord, may today be their day of salvation. Holy Spirit, as you move, may we respond. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.